stop me batting cleanup. That ain't fair. Um, well, uh, just for the rest of y'all, here's where I've been for six years. I, I literally left here, uh, and it was one of the last places I preached because I had had a complete heart failure and heart attack at the same time. And it began the next three years of surgeries, had eight surgeries. Now, I reached a point during that part of the journey where I thought, uh, if I see one more Judge Judy in a waiting room, <laughs> I was going to stab somebody. So I was bound and determined to get back up. I have this um, motto that I live by, my son and I both. Uh, we are blood-bought and bulletproof until Christ takes us home. Amen. And I, was, I am not going out in a robe that opens in the back. So slowly, very subtly, very slowly, I got back to it. And three years ago, started teaching again at Arlington Baptist University and became the dean of their graduate school. So, yeah, it took me some time. There's a lot of y'all in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you have walked through fire and flame to be here tonight. And over the course of a couple years, or even more, you're a walking, talking, breathing miracle. And the fact that we are gathered here on a Monday is a testimony unto an almighty God who don't quit. I get to face all these students all the time. And I have to warn you a little bit because it, it's, it's the way I am and it's what I do. Um, I'm not really subtle, and I don't mean to offend you if I do. We'll be standing around talking at a table somewhere when we're done, and, and I'll apologize to you face to face. Uh, because I don't know I'm doing it half the time. Turkish immigrant Yankee. And I know that last one is the most offensive out of all those. <laughs> but it's true. Came to America to build mosques with our father. He built the mosque on Broad Street in Columbus, Ohio. And through the testimony of one kid, one stubborn, obnoxious, incessant kid, Jerry Tackett, I got saved. Um, I got saved in the senior year of high school, having been raised as a Muslim. And my, my father is a Muazin. My father, until he died, was the guy who would do the call to prayer. And because he was an architect, when we moved to America, um, he was part of that movement that built mosques, doubled the number of mosques and masjids and uh, masalas all over the country. Jerry Tackett came after me for three and a half years. Now, I want you to chew on that, because that has a lot to do with what I'm going to talk about tonight. He didn't quit. He didn't shut up. I have a boatload of kids, and they're all on campus now. And if you think about it, this is an interesting generation. They were born right after two towers went down, and they're living through this pandemic. And just a few days ago, they saw people falling from airplanes as the Taliban, you know, the Talib, the students, the, the Taliban took over Afghanistan again. And they're part of a generation that really is enamored with itself. Every bunch of kids are that way, I'm sure. But y'all know there's a fact. There is no animal on the planet that knows more than a first-year Bible college student. <laughs> right? They've read one Warren Wiersbe book, got a John Piper in their backpack, and, and they think they're going to change the world. We're going to start a revolution. Uh, sweetheart, you can't even start a stick shift. Right, right, right? Call me when you got three on the tree, you know? Call me when you can read cursive. Call me when a law, when you can read a clock that's analog. I mean, 
you know, pull back a little bit. Well, consequently, and because of this, I sometimes step in it. Because Jerry Tackett was not sweet and nice. Now, I've already told you, I'm Turkish. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm not Hispanic. I have no dog in that fight. Everybody's arguing about it. I'm the olive-skinned. And even among the Muslims, you know, I'm not really welcome because, not just because I converted, but I'm not Persian, I'm not Arab, I'm Anatolian, right? We're the olive skin, we're the descendants of Genghis Khan. And um, Jerry Tackett reached me precisely for the reason that this culture pursues justice. No offense, you white people, but y'all are very nice too nice. Sometimes, even Christians, oh, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. Yeah, here's the problem. I don't care about your feelings. I'm not saved based on my feelings. And, and I'm tired of a culture that now speaks about, I feel, I feel, I feel. And then they go, well, I think, and I think, and I think, and it's opinion. And then they maybe get to, I believe, I believe, I believe. But listen, my Bible says, these things I have written that you might know that you're children of God. So my job is to pour into those students how to get to know and to get away from feel. No, again, again, no offense to feeling, but God help us. An entire culture based on scratch and sniff. <laughs> everything, everything, everything is feeling. You know, I feel that's your truth. I feel that way. Not my truth. Truth is truth. We found out in March that they think that math is racist. Math ain't racist. How do you take objective truth and turn it into a race issue? It's not. Now, I'll tell you the application might be, and I'm in a Baptist group, so I can, I can apply it. If I fry a couple of eggs for a sandwich, I can do two. Deviled eggs, I can eat about 50. So the application's a little bit different. But how do you say it has nothing to do with race at all? They were seeking justice. They were seeking, and they are yelling and screaming for Justice. Well, guess what? I got saved because somebody yelled at me. You come to my country, or you come to the uh, Middle East. I've been to Israel you know, 20 times. And you go there, and you walk up, and somebody hands you a pair of glasses. My friend, this is for you. If you're in Istanbul, we use lira. And so they go, for you, my friend, 300 lira. All of a sudden, you're friends. It's the outdoor market, sort of like Canton. And it's barter time. And if you've walked up and touched something that I'm selling on my table, it's on. And we'll follow you to the bus. <laughs> and again, some of y'all are really nice. Amen. Some of y'all get really, you know, I don't, I don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> he, he's he's going to rip you off if you're not careful. So you counter. Well, I'll give you 200. Now we're going to yell. Something about you're stealing food out of the mouth of my children. Yeah? And then we counter. 180, don't tell anybody. We argue about everything. We argue, scream, yell about sports, coffee, politics, everything. Matter of fact, the Quran says, 114 chapters, but the Quran says if a man does not believe and speak of what he believes, he doesn't believe it. So you know what reached me? Tackett wouldn't shut up. I had my little prayer rug. I mean, picture me. I'm, I'm now living in Columbus, Ohio. And I've got my little prayer rug in my locker. I roll it out, do my prayer time, look up. You know, you've got your forehead to the ground. And there's Tackett with a Jack Chick track sharing the gospel with me. Leave me alone. Go away. You want to come to youth group? Want to come to fifth quarter, hot dog hog out, whatever? That was Tackett. And I told him no. A thousand times I told him no. And he kept coming. How many of us, if we're afraid to hurt somebody's feelings, we walk away? My wife is a very emotional person. She is a feeling type person sometimes. And um, some of y'all can relate. You don't like fighting. You don't like arguing. And I will say as gently as I can to my, my bride, I love you and I love Hobby Lobby. But walk away when you got those oils in your hand, because I don't want to smell like lavender. And if you really want to attract me, put a little bit of gun oil behind each ear. I'll find you. <laughs> Frying oil, Crisco, something like that. That'll <laughs> work. And I love, I love Hobby Lobby, but I don't need John 3.16 toilet paper to make me feel saved. 
And that's, that's my baby. That's how she is. Well, Tackett kept coming. And going into my senior year at Gahanna Lincoln High School, graduated in 1984, going into my senior year, right outside of Columbus, Ohio, I decided I was going to show him. Tackett, I will come to your church, because I had never been to a church, never held a Bible, had nothing to do with you people. I'll go to your church, you come to the mosque. And Jerry Tackett walked on Broad Street into the Islamic Foundation, the building that my father helped construct so it would become a masjid, a mosque. He showed up on Friday, Jumiat, when we're doing our prayer time, with a Jesus Saves t-shirt. <laughs> Amen. So I, he took me up on it. I walked into the Stells Road Baptist Church because I had to pay a debt. Sat in the back. As you'll learn quickly, I'm not a real friendly person. I just wasn't, that's not the way God ever made me. And so I sat in the back, I wanted to be left alone. Nobody told me the Baptist secret. Because in those country churches, they fill up in the back. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's like 60 of them around, like all around me. Here's the Bible. Here's the hymnal. Here's the bulletin. Do you like the Gaithers? I didn't, I didn't know what any of that meant. I didn't, I didn't have a clue. I had no idea. After that service, he dragged me to Clarence Miller, and Clarence Miller yelled at me. He called me boy. I mean, you didn't, the tacket pulls me up, like, here, here he is, here he is. Like, you got to point out the kid dressed as the Muslim in a Baptist church. And he goes, here he is. And Clarence said, boy, what do you think about Jesus? And I said, oh, I, I respect him. In Islam, we, I mean, we respect him as a prophet. He, we even named the 19th chapter of the Quran after his mom. Right? Surah Miriam, Surah Mary. And Clarence Miller said, uh, you can't respect him. He said he was God, which means he either was or he wasn't. Right. If he was, he deserves more than respect. And if he wasn't, he deserves his, you deserve his pity. You know, there's a lot of people who think they're God, but they're not. They're high, they're drunk, they're whatever. And he explained to me something that's literally unfolding on our televisions right now again. He explained to me that Christ on the cross shed his blood, which made my blood unnecessary. Jesus strapped himself to a cross so I wouldn't have to strap a bomb to myself. My blood was redundant, and his blood is enough. I got saved four days later. I sat on the second row, because again, I didn't want anybody around me. <laughs> right? And um, I guess I need to tell you this ahead of time. I'm a Christian grump, okay? There's a couple of y'all in this room, you're looking right at me. I am here to represent you. I love everybody because I'm saved. I just don't like most people. Half time, I can't stand myself. But I was sitting on the second row, I wanted to hear the sermon, didn't know that there was such a thing as an invitation. Again, if you've never been in a Baptist church, and now all of a sudden you're surrounded by these people, and y'all are going, well, Matthew chapter 24, what? Slow down, what? What? Book and... I, I, I couldn't find anything. And stand, sit, turn around, hug a neck, kiss a baby. <laughs> y'all practicing Jesus uh, size while I'm trying to stand and sit, and I'm like, I want to sit down. You don't do, there's no singing in the mosque. None. Not in a Sunni mosque, not in a Shiite mosque, not in a Sufi None of them. And here I was surrounded by all these people who were happy. Yeah. Some of y'all are happy people. You worked all day. You got up early this morning. You're still smiling. God bless you. And I got some of them kids at my school about one hour from here at Arlington Baptist University. They're, they're, they're up at five, man. You guys, let's get everybody get up. Rise and shine. I'll punch you in the throat. <laughs> Don't do that around me. And, all, and I was sitting on the second row, didn't know the Baptist secret. I didn't know what an invitation was. Didn't know I had to wait for 715 verses of I have decided. <laughs> I just thought he was speaking to me. So I stepped out and walked down to the front. And there was Clarence preaching. Clarence old school. Clarence Miller was an old Kentucky rum runner who'd gotten saved. And he, he used to say, he used to say uh, if you ain't sweating and slobbering, you ain't preaching. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about? We used to call them Tennessee wind suckers. They'd breathe in between. God! No! Okay. That's Clarence, man. And he, he had his handkerchief. I've always had one because of Clarence. It, was for, it wasn't for showing. It was for blowing. And he had his handkerchief, and he looks down, and there's this kid standing in front of him. And he went, what? And I said, um, yeah, he said, been I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I want to be saved. And he said, uh, well, could you wait for the invitation? I said, no. Spun me around in front of 50, 60 people, and he led me to Christ. I'm saved. Now, as we speak, there are Christians being hunted in Kabul. And I get to talk to my students about that. And they have a culture, they live in a culture, and so do you, and so do I, that says, you know, it's the same God, you know, Allah, Jehovah, it's all the same, they're both monotheistic, and they're all sons of Abraham, it's all the same. No, it ain't. Well, you're going to sing the Coca-Cola theme song and light a candle. And, nope. You're insulting me when you say that. And you're insulting those people who are now in prisons. Those people being beaten. And on Friday, Jumiat, they'll be buried up to their waist and stoned to death. We bury within 24 hours, so you're wrapped in your burial cloth. And they stone you to death for the sole crime of being a murtad, a believer in Jesus. So if you look at me and say, well, it's the same God. You know, I don't understand what all the fuss is. Huh? I didn't switch jerseys. I didn't change teams. I didn't go from worshiping God in one language to another language. I didn't go from one holy book to another holy book. I didn't go from one jersey to another jersey. I went from worshiping a false, dead idol named Allah to knowing the only true, living, redeeming, returning Lord. Amen. Only Christ, man. Only Christ. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Not Muhammad. Jesus don't share his seat with anybody. Nobody else can sit on it. Nobody can unseal the seal. So I'm saved and angry. That's what happened. I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life. A year later, surrendered to the ministry. And I begin by telling you this. Personally, I try to stay in the will of God, I, I, to the best of my ability, was. But I spent 10 years out of the will of God, professionally. And that little church, I don't know how you do it, Brother Hunt, but, but the way we did it back then was he spun me, I came forward and he spun me around in front of the church, and oh, by the way, I need to let you know, the day I got saved, youth group went out to eat, as we are apt to do. And... Um, Got to tell the waitress I was saved. Ate every piece of ham and bacon that they had on the menu. <laughs> right, right. You never had it. I'm all about it, you know. And I called my baba, I called my father, and I told him I was saved. And I was, I was disowned. I didn't see my father for 17 years, until right before he died, 1999. I was a, an embarrassment to him. And again, I could be put to death in other countries, 36 other countries. He thought he was being merciful. My church, my church became my family. I discovered that we called each other brother and sister, not because it was a cliche, but because we have a common bloodline and a common father. And so I became that kid who rode the bus. I became that kid who sat in the Sunday school class, raised his hand every three seconds. I, I just wanted to know. I didn't know. And then I, all of a sudden I think I'm a minister. My pastor turned me around in front of everybody, and he said, well, bless God. This moaning brother, he never could get my name right, so he'd say, brother, arrogant. <laughs> arrogant, arrogant is what my name is. But he said, brother, arrogant comes forward to surrender to the gospel ministry. He'll be preaching his first sermon tonight. So I had uh, five hours, seven-minute sermon. Heaven, hell, don't be stupid. That's all, I, that's all I preached. I thought I had to be a pastor. I thought I had to be a shepherd. I don't have that gifting. I became a professor after 10 years. 
I served in little churches and ran off as many as I could bring in. <laughs> right? Because there's a problem. Christianity is pretty simple. Reach them, teach them, send them out. It's us. That's it. Reach them, teach them how to reach somebody else, launch. We don't come together to be church, we launch out to be church. Coming together, we celebrate. Christianity is pretty simple. But we've mucked it up sometimes. And some of the meanest, most vicious people I've ever had to deal with were saved. And you and I both know that in every church, there are some crazy people. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Every single church has got some crazy people. And those little churches where I served, Red, uh, Redbird number 2 in Kentucky, Manchester, Kentucky, Clay County, Vincennes, Indiana, and then finally North Carolina, Wood, North Carolina. Those little churches, they used to play a game. The game was called Torture the Immigrant Yankee. That's me. And it was because of this game that I found myself in a field at 5 o'clock in the morning with a burlap sack yelling for something called Snipe. <laughs> I just want you to know you're evil for laughing at that. Um, yeah. If you ever wondered if somebody ever fell for that, I'm right here. <laughs> Some of them did it because they loved me. Some of them did it because they just about one hair away from crazy. You know what I'm talking about, and you know who I'm talking about. There are some people who are only happy when they're sad, who are as miserable as the conversation is, and they're crazy. Problem was, because I wasn't a shepherd, because I didn't have poimen, I didn't have the heart, uh, I ran them off. Those little shotgun churches where there's a door right there and the bell that would hang from it. One door in, one door out. And I'd stand at the back door. <laughs> I'm going to give away one of our secrets. There's something called the preacher handshake. And I did it every Sunday. No offense, Doc. I'm just going to have to... Here's what you do. You take the hand with the right and the elbow with the left, and you pull. <laughs> Service is over, invitation's been given, I'm yanking you out the door. You know why? Because y'all want to talk, and I'm hungry. Right? I've been there since 8 o'clock in the morning, turned on the lights, emptied the diaper pails, turned on the air conditioner, made sure everything was right, and then you want me, will you baptize my goat? Nope, come on, right out. Go, go, go. And the crazies would never get in line because they want to talk. They pull you aside. Preacher, you have offended us. You've hurt our feelings. We are praying about leaving the church. A pastor knows how to pray with those people. I didn't. I didn't know how. I, I just said, leave. What do I care? Go. Go infect another church. I don't care. I'll call them and tell them you're coming. How about that? You know what I'm talking about, and you know who I'm talking about. There's some people, there. I'm not questioning their salvation. They are born-again, blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, they're saved. They're going to be in heaven. I just don't want them near me. <laughs> and right now, you're thinking about that person <laughs> in your life or in your Sunday school class. You see them come down the hallway. You ask them how they're doing, and you kick yourself because you know they're going to tell you, and that is a long conversation. And if you're not thinking about somebody... It's you. <laughs> I, hate to say, I hate to say it. Right now, somebody's thinking about you. Uh, I, I, just, I didn't have that. 1992, after 10 years trying to be a pastor, trying to be a preacher, I started teaching. And I can't, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how much I love the classroom. I'm not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an evangelist. I'm just a guy. I love to teach. I love being in the pulpit. I love going wherever somebody invites me. I have a thing written on the front of my Bible, on the front of my desk that says, go anywhere. Don't ever ask the size of the church, and don't ever ask the size of, of the check. Just go. 
it's the greatest joy in my life. If I'd had to stay down and sit there in paper shoes, I'd have been as miserable as anybody. Nope. I love what I get to do. I love being part of it. But let's be honest. There are some people that are saved and crazy. And by the way, no offense, but y'all got a ton of them. It's a biblical principle. Write it down. Put it in the front of your Bible. The brighter the light, the more bugs it attracts. <laughs> Y'all got a lot of bugs, I'm sure. So I stand in front of those students, and I tell them, you better stop complaining. By the way, nobody has ever tried to escape out of America by hanging from a plane. Appreciate what you got. Here's the law for immigrants, and I'm one of them. Pay your taxes, love the people, learn to love the food, and join in the reindeer games. Be a part. And if you're not going to be a part, get out. I don't have patience for any of that. And with my students, I tell them, yeah, there are people that are born-again blood-bought believers that are nuts, but don't let them stop you. I don't come to church because of Christians. I come to church because of Christ. I want the man to preach hard and hot. I want the music to lead me to the throne like we just had. I'm fine. If you got your hands raised, awesome. If I've got my arms crossed, don't look at me. I ain't worshiping you anyways. But I love. Worship leads us. Worship brings us. Y'all understand in the Old Testament, you know what led them into battle? Yeah. It was the musicians. You need worship to open up the word. And Christianity would be a whole lot easier if it wasn't for some Christians. D.L. Moody said, salvation is eternal, but stupid is forever. How do you deal with them? Well, how about this? If you're going to be psycho, be a good psycho. Be the best at being crazy. Because being crazy doesn't just happen overnight. There are people that you and I know, it's subtle. It didn't happen one morning when they woke up and they just said, okay, I'm just going to be nuts. No. Slowly, they made decisions. They made choices. And those conscious, willing choices they made turned them from slightly crazy to fully psycho. And so tonight, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, I want to show you if you're going to be crazy, be a good one. Be the biggest crazy person around. If you're going to be, this is secrets of a successful psycho. Because if you're going to be one, be one. I'm going to set the stage, and in a minute we're going to begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Here's the story. It's the last battle between David's boys and Saul. David's already been anointed king. Saul's still fighting. Saul's got his armies, David's got his. But over the course of time, David's and his armies started succeeding more, started uh, becoming more successful. And we are now, in this text, at the last fight, the last battle. David is headquartered in Hebron. Saul, of course, is in Jerusalem. David, his guy is Joab. You're going to want to know Joab because he's psycho. That is the commander of his army. Saul, the commander of his army, is a guy named Abner. And in this last battle, which you can read on your own time in 2 Samuel chapter 2, here's what happened. David and his guys, Joab and his army, I mean it was a wholesale slaughter. So much so that Abner knew even during the battle that it was done and they were over. I tell my son this all the time. It's something, my son is 17 years old this, coming up in a month. And he'll look at me and tell me, because I'm 55, I had youngins late, and, and he, he'll look at me and go, oh, Papa, you don't know music because our singers, some of them are legit. They've been to jail. Okay. For how long? Oh, they were in for weeks. Let me tell you about George Jones, son. George Jones got so drunk one day, he tried to outrun the cops on a lawnmower. That's legit. Willie Nelson got so drunk one night, his wife caught him doing something he ought not be doing. She sewed him into the sheets and beat him half to death with a golf club. 
That's legit. And two of the greatest recordings of all time, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison, those guys knew. Don't talk to me about legit. And Abner was old. That's important. Because as I tell my boy, old will beat young every day. Young and strong will always lose to old and cranky. Because we cheat. Joab had two brothers, Abishai and Azahel. Azahel, 2 Samuel chapter 2 says, he was as fast as a deer. And Azahel, as the battle is going down, clearly, clearly Joab is winning. Azahel's side is winning. And he finds Abner, the old captain of the guard, and he starts chasing Abner up a hill. Abner looks over his shoulder and he goes, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. are you Joab's brother? Yep. Azahel, don't you chase me, boy. He said he was young and he, was a, he ran like a deer. Boy, don't you chase me. You go right, left, don't you chase me. And Azahel keeps chasing, doesn't listen. Azahel starts taunting. Azahel's getting closer and closer. Joab says, son, I will, I mean, uh, Abner says, son, I will stab you with the back of my spear. You will lose. Stop chasing me. You're the, you're the brother of the captain of the other team. Y'all are winning. Leave me alone. He wouldn't. Azahel got ready to kill him. And clearly, Abner just goes, stabs him. The back of his sword. Again, you got the time to read that. The most important thing that you need to know from that story is Joab finds out about it. Abner killed my brother. I don't care if we won or not. I will avenge my brother's death. Yeah, he knew that his brother didn't listen. Yeah, he knew that his brother was impetuous and young. Yeah, he knew that there was Azahel who wouldn't pay attention and wouldn't listen. And at the end of his rope, Abner had to stab him. Didn't want to. Tried to repent. Tried to ask him to forgive. But Joab would have nothing of it. The battle ends, and we are now in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Here's what happens. David sees Abner and the troops coming from Saul's boys are coming to surrender. David sees them coming. Joab's not there. Joab is bringing the booty, bringing the stuff that they caught, were carrying. But here comes Abner, and Abner's going to surrender. The war's over. David is going to become king in Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 20. So Abner, that's Saul's guy, that's Saul's commander-in-chief. Abner comes to David in Hebron. He got 20 men with him. David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast because David knew they were coming to surrender. Abner says to David, listen, I'm going to get up and I'm going to gather all of Israel under the, you, my lord the king, that they may make league with you, that they may reign over all your heart desires. We quit. We surrender. It's over. Too much blood has been lost. We're done. The Bible says, then David sent Abner away with peace. Okay, go get your boys. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop, and they were brought a great spoil with them. But Abner wasn't with David in Hebron, because Abner had now been sent away. He had gone in peace. That's going to be important. So now Joab shows up, working for his boss, David. He's, he won. You won. You are the conquering soldier. You are the lead general. And here comes Joab, verse 23. When Joab and all the host that was with him, when they showed up, they, they, these people, this host of people told Joab, listen, Abner, the son of Ner, he came to the king, and the king sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Verse 24, Joab goes to the king, his boss, and he says, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he's far away? Why'd you let him go? You know Abner, the son of Ner. He has come to deceive you. He's lying to you. Know that you are going out and you're coming in. He came to find out what you were doing, and he wants to know everything that you're doing. But by the way, they'd already lost. He came to surrender. When Joab was come from David, when he leaves the king's court, the temporary king's court in Hebron, he sends messengers after Abner. He brings them to the wall of Sirah. David didn't know about this. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Abner comes back. He's facing the brother of the guy he killed, and 
But he assumes that David you know, knows they're surrendering, and Joab knows. When he returns to Hebron, Joab pulls him in close at the gate to speak to him, to whisper. And he stabbed him under the fifth rib. He leans in. Joab leans in like he's going to tell him a secret, and he stabs Abner under the fifth rib, dies immediately, did it for the blood of Azahel, out of revenge, out of vengeance. He killed the man who was going to come to surrender. Afterwards, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom, I and my kingdom, we didn't do this. We are guiltless before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. Don't let it fail that in the house of Joab that one is an issue or a leper or, or, or leans on a staff, somebody who falls on a sword, lacks bread. He said, it's a curse on you and a curse on your entire family because of what you've done. How, how, why? Why did you do this now? And by the way, it ends by saying in verse 31, David says to Joab and everybody who's with him, tear your garments, gird yourself with sackcloth, and we're going to join the funeral procession. We mourn before Abner, and he followed after what are you doing, Joab? Well, what happened was Joab went crazy. Joab made a series of decisions that by the time he was done, all he saw was rage and revenge. That's all he knew. And he was willing to do whatever it took to be as deceptive as he could to a guy who warned and begged his brother to stop chasing him. Joab is the king of psychos. If you're going to be psycho, if you're going to be crazy, if you're going to be one of those people that is just so self-consumed that church means nothing if, if it's not focused on you, then you've got to make these decisions. There's three things that I can find from the text that Joab did. It's subtle. And by the way, here's how subtle it is. It can happen to any one of us. Any one of us, if we make a series of decisions, we can, in fact become one of those crazy people and go cycle and ruin our own lives as well as the lives of people around us, number one. If you're going to be crazy, if you're going to go full psycho, like Joab, forgive nothing. Choice number one, forgive nothing. Every single person in this room, every single one of us, have not only been wounded, but we have been bruised and battered and betrayed. And, quite frankly, sometimes by Christians and churches. Or you have been through something so huge, so massive, that it changed the direction of your life. And there was somebody to blame or something that happened, even if it's God. And in your heart of hearts, you know you end up, you end up blaming God. And you can't forgive him. Here's what happens when you get to that point. When you cannot release somebody to God, when you cannot do like Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If you can't pull that off, here's what's going to happen. It starts with resentment. Then it becomes a grudge. And then the grudge goes inward. And when the grudge goes inward, it becomes bitterness. And you know what the Bible says about bitterness. Bitterness takes root, and then it spreads its tentacles across your whole being. Now, culturally, I just talked about it. There are points of our lives where we know exactly where we were when we heard that thing or saw that thing happen. 9-11, I was teaching at Criswell College, second period, when I heard the first plane hit. We all know, you all know, we have a moment where we know where we were. Before that, it would have been maybe the Challenger. Before that, uh, Kennedy assassination. There are moments culturally that we measure time before and after, and so does every person in this room. When somebody left you, or when somebody died, or when you lost the greatest job of your life, or whatever. You went through such turmoil that your stomach hurt, that your life changed, that you didn't want to be in the bed, you wanted to be under the bed. And there are people to point your finger at, and you won't forgive them. But ultimately, it's because you don't trust God. You end up saying, Lord, why'd you bless that family? Why'd you bless them? Why are they happy? Why is everything working out for them? You feel like you've been picked out to be picked on. 
you, you end up feeling like God is blessing everybody else but me. That maybe, just maybe, he's picked me out to curse me. And you begin to question the heart of God. Man, that was Joab. Didn't matter to him that he won. Didn't matter that they were now going to move to Jerusalem, that he was going to be the king of or the uh, general of everything. He didn't care. It didn't matter to him. Rage became bitterness. Bitterness, uh, the grudge, and the grudge took root. Man, when you get to that point, when uh, when you get to that point where you can't forgive, let me tell you something. Some of y'all in this room have gone through such horror of what people have done to you, and maybe it's still going on. And you and I both know that the hardest thing to do is to forgive somebody who ain't offering an apology. Right? They don't think they did anything wrong. You got run out of church or you got run out of ministry or you got talked about or backstabbed or whatever. And you know what? You have every right to feel that way. I'm not questioning you at all. But here's the thing. You will never grow past your ability to forgive. It freezes you. It freezes you because time stopped for you. And the next thing you know, everybody else is moving on. The world is continuing. You may be sitting alone because the seat next to you used to be filled, or a child, in my case, my son, who killed himself in 2014. Or you had something happen, or somebody didn't survive something, or somebody died on a table, or somebody died in a surgery, or somebody is no longer there, or they left you, abandoned you, betrayed you, talked smack about you. Trust me, I know. There are people that I would love to rock bottom through a Toyota Corolla. There are people that I would love to see bad things happen to, but you know what? Forgiving them releases God to deal with them. He's not going to do it if you won't forgive. It's the hardest lesson I ever had to learn. And some of us in this room. Forgiving them does not mean they're going to get away with it. Forgiving them means you say, God, you got a bigger stick than I do. you got a bigger paddle and you know what to do. And when you say that, I forgive them even if they don't want it, even if they don't deserve it. It releases your heart. It frees you up. Carrying a grudge like that is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else is going to die. You, you point at them, you look at them, and you're like, Ugh! don't drink the poison. Release them. Lay their name on an altar, and then every day, forgive them again. Even though they don't deserve it, and even though they don't want it. Let me give you an example. My wife and I go out to eat with a young couple. I am useless outside of what I do. If my car breaks down, if you ever see me under a car, I have been hit. <laughs> Fact. I have never hunted. I have never fished. I have never mowed a yard. I am a city guy. If I hadn't brought books with me, I'd have ridden my bike up here. Softail, 1340, by the way. Even with my heart. I, I, I don't know how to do anything, anything. I'm useless. And he was going to teach me how to grill because in Texas, <laughs> you got to be a man. I tried to learn how to cook. I love the Food Channel. But I'm going to speak directly to you ladies. No offense, but y'all are evil. Because I ask you for a recipe. I ask you how you fix your biscuits. I need somebody to tell me the measurements because I don't know nothing. I need somebody to tell me how much. No, here's what y'all do. Oh, it's a little smidge, just a smidge. <laughs> it's just a pinch. Just a... There's no such thing as a pinch. You made it up. You just don't want to tell me your recipe. So Scott was going to tell me how to grill. I was going to grill some flesh and be a man. We're sitting at the table. I'm here. Scott's here. Trish, here. Right there sits Cindy. Here's what happened. We're drinking sweet tea. <laughs> Y'all make sweet tea like it's 40 weight. <laughs> and I love it. So we got our glasses. He's telling me a story. We got the ice in the glasses, drinking the tea. I'm just listening, learning. But Scott keeps going. And he keeps talking and he finishes his tea. 
but he's still telling his story. Cindy got up because Scott lifted up his glass and shook the ice. She got up. She went to the counter. I'm almost to heaven telling you the story. I'm about to rapture just telling you the story. She got up, picked up the tea, brought it back, poured his drink. He never broke from his story, I, but I couldn't tell you what he was saying. He's not staring at the tea. So I start reaching for my glass. And my wife said, do it and you die. It ain't fair, Lord. I want some tea. I want to shake my glass. In the Turkish culture, you refer to your wife sometimes as woman. Not in the American culture. Only once. Only once. I was on my phone, and I needed a pen. I couldn't find a pen. No pen in my pocket, no pen anywhere. And I went, woman. <laughs> okay, see your faces, see? Somebody needs to write a book and tell the rest of us. Because she went, first off, I heard her neck. She, my wife is six foot one. And it's, it's sort of cool to be scared of your wife a little bit, you know? She went, call me woman one more time. Do it. And I went, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I want that. You get the idea? If all of a sudden I'm comparing myself to somebody else, and I see that they're more blessed than I am. I miss all the blessings that I've got. I'm still breathing. I'm still moving. All the surgeries in the world couldn't stop me. I'm still going to teach. I'm still going to preach. I'm still going to move. I refuse to surrender to bitterness. I refuse to live in the past. My son has moved on to Jesus. My other son is still here. At one point when I was ready to give up everything, Drake was six years younger. I had to tell Drake that his own brother had taken his life. But at one point in the hospital, laying there, the boy had to sit in the, in the chair next to me. He said, so, so why? I was, I was done, man, and I was whining and complaining. And he said, Papa, you got two sons. I only have one father. There it is. You're going to be Joab. Forgive nothing. Number two, you're going to make those decisions? You want to go crazy? You want to be a successful psycho? Trust no one. How do you go to David, your king? How do you go to your boss and talk smack? David, how stupid can you be? You know good and well Abner is here to trick us. He's here to deceive us. You know, you are so naive, king. And he starts doing this, because this is what happens when you go psycho. First, you don't tr believe anybody, you don't trust anything, you, you won't forgive, and if people don't accept that, you cut him out of your life, and the next thing you know, you begin to isolate. And all Joab had was just a couple of his buddies, the 20 who had returned with him. And he goes to the gate with his 20, and then he goes alone to stab the guy. He is surrounded by just the people he felt he could trust. And what happens is, if you're not careful, if you're going to go crazy, you get fewer and fewer people that you can trust, fewer and fewer people that you like, fewer and fewer people that you stand with, and you will never open yourself up for other relationships or love. You cut yourself off from God to bless you. And you cut yourself off from people who want to pray for you. And whether you like it or not, we were designed as a fellowship. We were designed as a communion. We need each other. To use my wife's word, we kin. Which means this. I may be the uncle that you can't stand that lives in the attic. But I'm family. And we're about to see it in a couple of months. We're going to have Thanksgiving. And you and I both know there are going to be people at your table at Thanksgiving that were you not related to them, you would stab them with a fork. <laughs> but they're family. They're family. I get the same speech every Thanksgiving. We pull up. My wife's got a big family. Don't you start no fights. She slaps my arm because I love to start fights. It's what I do for a living. I'll walk into the room and go, how about that Trump? What y'all doing? And they start doing this. And she'll go, why'd you do that? Or I'll walk in and go, how many genders y'all think there is? 
and then walk out of the room just to watch it happen. Because it's funny to me. You may not like me, but you got to love me. I need you. And we need each other. And if you cut yourself off from everybody, you become suspicious, you become distracted, you become so isolated that you start becoming narcissistic. Let me tell you the story. I told you Wood Baptist Church that called me as pastor. It was eight people. I mean, I've got this personality. And I'm a Turk, and I'm in North Carolina at the time. And I, I, say, I was like, yeah, I'll come and preach. And I preached, and one of the women said, yeah, bring that Yankee Jew boy back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't care what you call me. And I came back, and they voted on me. But it was eight people. And because it was Baptist, it wasn't unanimous. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. We are good at food, fellowship, funerals, and fights. And two sisters argued over me. The first Wednesday that I'm there to preach, the first Wednesday we're doing prayer requests, had an old marker board we pull out. I got a marker and I'm going to do prayer requests. I've been pastor for exactly four days in a town of 115 people. Now there's a little more than eight because they all want to see who the new preacher boy is. And they brought me bags full of vegetables. I don't, I don't eat vegetables. I don't know what to do with that. I'm a carnivore. And I didn't know what an okra was, or I didn't know I had to pull a string off the beans. I didn't know any of that. I'd never been in a field. It was nice, but they're just staying there in bags. But I'm ready. I'm ready for the prayer meeting. Woman sitting on the second row was sitting all by herself. She didn't just offer a prayer request, she stood up. Now, standing in the back was a number of people who weren't quite ready to sit down yet. I need to tell you this because it is North Carolina, it's Franklin County. This church had two smoking sections, regular and menthol. And one of the women standing back there the whole time, free free like that, always dangling. That's how she smoked. So she's standing in the back, talking to a couple of people. The woman stands up on the second row and begins to share a prayer request. Shares this prayer request about somebody in a surgery. A woman going in for surgery, brain surgery, and her husband had her served with divorce papers. So we're about two hours from Duke University, Wake Medical, and I thought, okay. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'll, I'll do that. And I start writing it on the board. While I'm writing it on the board, I have been pastor for four days. The woman in the back. Daw Jane, shut up! There is no guidebook to explain what to do when two women about to fight in church. And they both old as Moses. I didn't understand what this was. I didn't know who she was. I keep writing. Dora Jane doesn't even flinch. Dora Jane doesn't turn around. Dora Jane keeps talking. My thought was the woman in the back must be, must be friends with the husband. Right? I thought this was going to be a family fight. And she keeps talking. The woman's got kids. She, you know, it's going to be rough. And I'm writing as fast as I can. And Dora Jane gets done talking. And the woman in the back says, Dora Jane, if you don't shut up, I'm going to punch you in the eye. No book, no Criswell guidebook. There was nothing I could read. I'm 20, whatever it was, years old, 25, 26 years old, first pastorate, full time. Eight people voted on me. It was a seven to one. And I got two women ready to throw hands. So I turned around with the best preacher voice I could find. And I went, ma'am, we don't talk to each other that way. Please. And before I could finish, she said, preacher, it ain't real. She's sharing from her soap opera. This woman believed her soap operas were real. And she was sharing a prayer request from Edge of Children or whatever it was called. And the one prayer request I'm writing feverishly, Dora Jane thinks those people in the TV are talking to her and she's sharing a prayer request from it. I'm done, Lord. Why did you send me here? Why? Who are these people? And it keeps going, by the way. The torture continues. Ten years ago, Dumas, Texas. Boy, you want to come preach? Yes, sir, I do. His name is Jay McGoy. Come on, we're going to take you out to the restaurant. You like seafood? It's Dumas, man. They got cattle. I want a steak. 
Well, you can have some seafood as the appetizer. You like oysters? I do. Yeah. I didn't know what a Rocky Mountain oyster was. <laughs> you are evil people. I tell my students all the time, you show me your friends, I'll show you your direction. The voices you listen to affect the choices you make. And when you stop listening to other people's voices, you start isolating. The only voice you hear are the voices in your head. And you become so selfish, so self-centered, you don't even notice it. And you become a narcissist. And your pain and your need is bigger than anybody else's. But if you're going to be Joab, you don't hear anybody else. You isolate. Number three, we can go eat. Or we can go home. Because Dr. Quinn's on it. Ten. If you're going to be crazy, forgive nothing. Trust no one. And three, sacrifice everything. He's the guy. He won. You are going to be the general of the reunited children of God. Not since the days of Joshua is there going to be a guy with this much power. Joab, you the man. What is wrong with you? But you see, if you're willing to sacrifice everything... Your vengeance, your revenge, your desire for justice. You've been hurt. You've been done wrong. I guarantee everybody in this room has. And you may even be being hurt still today. And those godless people, those infidels, those people that are hurting you, don't think they've done a thing wrong. But see, it's starting to affect you. I was on I-20 and doing great until I hit Lindale. That's when I called Doc. Sitting still for a few minutes. We're on an interstate. And if somebody dare cut you off, if you're like me, I'll go on two tires. I don't care. I, and by the way, if you're driving slow, God bless you. Get out of the left lane. Well, there's a whole bunch of people in the left lane. When somebody cuts you off, what happens? You start yelling. You're not praising. You're not singing hymns of praise. It's not a Gaither song. You are saying things you're embarrassed of. And you are yelling and cussing and doing whatever. It doesn't bother them at all. They get off on their exit going about their merry way. They don't know what they did to you but you for the rest of the day. You carry it around. That's me. It can be any of us. When, when it becomes... The only thing you think about, it, you, you are willing to sacrifice everything, every blessing that God has given you. If I can just have revenge, or I can just hear them say I'm sorry, or I can watch them fall down. I've been there, you've been there, we all know. And the people that hurt you, God's got a better way and a bigger stick. And if you sacrifice everything, You go crazy. A tiny example and I'm done. I've always driven trucks. Always. I just like a good old beat up truck. I want a dog box in the back. Don't even have a dog. I just, I like those kind of trucks. They last forever. And I see these kids pull up to ABU. Daddy didn't pick the right color of seats. Daddy didn't get the heated seats. I wanted a personalized license plate. It's not fair. But in two years, I'm going to get another one because Daddy takes care of everything. If I were to ask every man in this room what your first car was, I'd venture to say for most of us, it wasn't a Mercedes. And it may have been a piece, but I bet you you made it run best you could. I bought mine for $150. It was a nine-passenger, Vista Cruiser, paneled station wagon. The only thing power on it was the AM radio and that back window, and which, by the way, that back window faced a pair of seats that faced the other direction. No girl would date me. A, I'm Turkish, I had one eyebrow. Until I learned how to separate them, nobody would come near me. And number two, Looked like I was one of the Bradys. 
I looked like I needed a sheepdog in the back. It ha- it, I got about four gallons to the mile. I could drive it up a tree, try as I might. I couldn't kill that thing. I want a news car. I want to be what those kids are. I want those spinners and roll on dubs. I want something. How can they have that? I want to key their car. And I miss the fact that every good and perfect gift comes from above the Father's eyes. And what you got is proven by this. God can't give you more till you're faithful with what you got. And God can't give you more. God can't move you on till you're faithful where you're at. Stop looking at everybody else. Life is not based on looks and likes. And if you pay attention, you'll see the blessings. And you don't end up like Joab. My grandmother moved to America and never learned English. Got saved, by the way. Got saved. She got saved. I think she, what was it, 1993. So she was 90 years old. Baptized at the Friendship Baptist Church in McKinney, Texas. By my brother, Emir. I guess I should tell you, in our family, both my brothers got saved. All three of us raised as sons of a Muslim. All three of us devout. All three of us led to Christ by somebody who was obnoxious in our lives. All three of us ended up with our doctrines. All three of us end up being preachers. All three of us. No, 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 don't, you don't know. No, 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 we don't have time. We don't have time. I, I, because, I tell you this because my mom got saved. My mom, my mom. Little woman with a heavy accent ended up planting churches until last year in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, in a place called Elephant Butte. And she was old school, door knocking, soul winning, King James. So funny, she could have, not even read half of it, but that was, it was like my pastor. My pastor, when I got saved, handed me a 1917 chain reference Schofield Bible with the charts. Our church sang the B I B L E, and the version is the KJV. I'm going to heaven with a 1611, the B-I-B-L-E. I didn't even know what that meant. My mom didn't either. God got a hold of my mom. She'd knock on your door, but the only thing she didn't ever stop doing was she, my mom smoked until the day she died. And she didn't just smoke. She ripped filters off of Paul Malls. The filters are for the Americans, like this. And she'd knock on your door. I would like to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> The Bible, here, hold this. The Bible says, (laughs) my mom, my grandmother, both my brothers, my dad never got saved. The other brothers and sisters that we have, the other wives that my father had, they didn't get saved. But my nuclear family is saved because one boy who wouldn't shut up, one church that wouldn't leave me alone. I tell you this because you have been very gracious and patient. Some of y'all have been here since six and maybe even earlier, helping to cook. And I'm begging you, I'm talking to Christians, I'm talking to believers, I'm talking to some of the strongest people I know. But it's a disease that's so rampant that it kills churches, and it kills your future. If you're so busy focusing on your past, you don't see what God's doing in the present, and you don't care about the future. And you begin to measure your life by your pain. I know that you have been through horrors. Some of you, unbelievable horrors, worse than anything I could ever share. But why are you letting it carry on still? The the spouse that left, the children that don't listen, the job that didn't appreciate, the money that disappeared, the people that gave up on you, the people that chased you out of town, they don't deserve any space in your heart. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The hardest decision for a Christian, usually strong Christian, is this. Before we sing, you step out, you find your spot on an altar, and you don't even need to pray with anybody else. You lay a name on the altar. A person that did you really wrong. Now the hard thing about that decision is, Number one, don't pick it up and walk back with it. Lay them on the altar and say, Lord, you're going to have to teach me how to forgive them because they don't deserve squat. But I deserve to live. 
I, I don't want to be Joab. I don't want to be a psycho. I don't want to let it rob me of tomorrow. And then tomorrow, you're going to have to pray it again. Learning how to forgive is an ongoing process. Learning how to forget means that you have to have an altar. You either have an altar or you live with a curse like Joab. He lost his future because he couldn't get over his past. The people that hurt you and did you wrong, leave them to God. Let him take care of it. Release them and you'll find out that you've released yourself. Let's pray. Here it is, Lord. As hard as this is, it's a decision that the strongest of Christians struggle with. Some of us, there are people that have so abused or abandoned or attacked that if we said the name out loud, we couldn't say it without gritting our teeth. They don't deserve a blessing in our hearts. They don't deserve you to do anything good to them. I get it. But neither do they deserve to eat up my future. It's a conscious decision and a willful act to step out and lay that hateful name on the altar and say consciously, willfully, Lord, I'm releasing them to you. I forgive them and they don't even want it or they don't even know or maybe they've already died, but I release them to you because I'm not gonna carry it around anymore. I don't want vengeance. I want you to do it. Vengeance is yours. I don't want them to get away with it, but I don't want them to get away with hurting me continually. I want a future that I can see and blessings that I appreciate. And I understand that you cannot move me on till I'm faithful where I'm at, and you can't give me more till I'm faithful with what I got. And Lord, that means I count my blessings one by one. I ignore my curses, and I walk past the pain. Lord Jesus, there are men and women in this room who just need to get in an altar and leave somebody there and release that person to your judgment and release us to see your blessing. I don't want to be a psycho. I don't want to trust nobody. I don't want to trust people. I don't want to forgive them, but I want to forgive people like Christ. I want a future, and I'm not going to sacrifice everything for it. We keep going gets better and better, not worse and worse. In the name of Christ, free us from the bondage of our past. We pray. Amen.